There was a well-known pupil or student of the Apostle John who was still ministering in Asia Minor while the Apostle was in exile on the island of Patmos. Like John, he lived a long life, and though we don't know how old he was, at the end of his life he announced that he had served the Lord for 86 years. The man's name was Polycarp. Those of you who have kids, that's a good name. You can mark that name down. Polycarp. He was the bishop. Means many fish. He was the bishop of the church at Smyrna. Uh, he may have had an interesting name. He had an even more interesting life. We find him in a short treatise called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. That's where we have most of our information about this elderly man. He had been asked to confess that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is King, God. But he refused. And because he refused, he was brought to the local arena and set before the crowd to be tried. And the proconsul, the, the governing official, came and began to urge Polycarp to reproach Christ. If you do, he said, you'll be set free. To which he answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has never done me wrong. How can I now blaspheme my King and my Savior? Again, he was urged to renounce Christ. And he answered, I am a Christian. And so the proconsul continued to pressure him. He said, I have wild beasts at hand ready to devour you unless you repent of Christ. I have flames with which to consume you if you will not repent. And Polycarp responded. He said, you threaten me with a fire that burns for but an hour. And after that it is extinguished. You do not know of the fires of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that is reserved for the ungodly. Why do you wait? I will not change my mind. And soon afterward, the people gathered wood and kindling, those from the local synagogue, eagerly helping them. And Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was burned at the stake in 155 A.D. I begin with this brief account from the martyrdom of Polycarp. You can go online and read the whole thing if you want. It's called the martyrdom of Polycarp. And I begin with this this morning just to remind us what those Christians to whom the book of the Revelation was written were about to endure. All right, the relative peace, relative some areas was harder than other, but the relative peace the church had enjoyed for the first hundred years was vanishing and they now were in the midst of a time of tribulation. And what happened to Polycarp would happen to many believers, especially at his church in Smyrna, the city to whom the second letter of Christ is addressed and the letter to which we will now turn. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And now we'll get to one more letter this morning as well, the letter to the church at Pergamum, but we'll read it when we get there. This first is the letter to the church at Smyrna. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. 
And to the angel in, of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, the one who died and who came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see what your word so richly says. And help us to believe, Lord, that which we hear. Lord, nothing can be accomplished here this morning. A soul cannot be strengthened. A sinner saved. Even, Lord, your word understood without you giving understanding from heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you would be at work in this place, Lord, to help me to preach and to help us to hear. It is a supernatural thing that you're doing. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in this place this morning by the power of your word, wielded by your Spirit. And we thank you, God, that we can come to you and we can trust you. We thank you that our lives are secure in your hands. And so I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen your church for the hearing of your word. Amen. You know, if you wanted one caption over this church at Smyrna, it would be faithful unto death. That was the whole character of the church. They loved not their own lives. And so to the church at Smyrna, the Lord God has only good things to say. Now, this city, this city was not an economic or a religious center in the ancient world. It wasn't an administrative hub or a destination that people would travel to. Smyrna was known for two things. Two things that evidently worked together to conspire against and bring much harm to the church in this city. Smyrna was a city with a vast Jewish population. And it was a city that prided itself on its unwavering alliance and loyalty to Rome. And you wonder, well, how did that conspire against the church? Well... You remember the distinction between Judaism and Christianity was eroding. Jew Judaism had protection in the Roman Empire. Christianity did not. And when that distinction was made and Christianity was seen as its own distinct religion, that brought itself under the, uh, under the gun of the state, of the Romans. As the Romans didn't like new religions in their empire, and uh, most of them were illegal. And so after the Jewish-Roman wars in the 70s, the Jews were being viewed with increased suspicion. And if you're being viewed with increased suspicion by a, a patriotic, you know, my country right or wrong kind of government, well, one of the ways to distinguish yourself and set yourself apart and, and regain some of that favor is by handing over enemies of the state. And so the Jews in Smyrna were eager to inform on those meddlesome anti-emperor worship Christians. 
The task was made easier for the Jews since they hated that Christians claimed that Jesus, who, who they thought was a rightly executed enemy of the state, they hated that they said He is the Messiah, and they hated that they worshipped Him. So the Jewish population of the city is eagerly handing over Christians to the Romans to be killed. And whatever comes to your mind when you think of that, the one thing that probably should come to mind is that it is decidedly Christian. What I mean by that is it is unmistakably similar to what happened to the Lord Jesus when He walked this earth. He was handed over to the civil government by an opposing religious group that should have been most eager to embrace Him. And what's happening to the Christians at Smyrna is exactly what happened to their Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are three things in this letter that I want to draw your attention to. Three things that are in this letter for faithful, suffering Christians. The first is who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? Who are God's covenant people? It's a question that permeates the book of Revelation and it's answered here most clearly. Believe it or not, this is a, a somewhat controversial question in our day and age. Are the covenant people of God, is it the church? Is it ethnic Israel? Is it both? Who are the people that God is in covenant with today? There's a lot of talk about how ethnic Israel and the nation of Israel kind of fits into the book of Revelation. And you've, you've probably heard news coming out of Palestine directly related to this book and events in the book of Revelation. They're connected together. And then that belief comes from the idea that God has two distinct peoples, ethnic Israel and the church. Now I know in the past that I was taught that God not only had two peoples, but two uh, distinct tracts of redemption in history. One for the church that is different than the one he has for Israel. And the church is redeemed differently by different means. Maybe you've heard that before. You know, the, the temple is going to be restored. Uh, the sacrifices are going to be reinstituted. All that kind of stuff happening in Israel. And I, I have to be honest. The Bible really doesn't teach that. And this may surprise you, but nobody in church history actually taught that either up until about 120 years ago. And even then, it was very small and kind of sequestered off from mainstream Christianity. And it wasn't until only about 60 to 80 years ago that this really became the prevailing view. And you say, if that's the case, if this is relatively new, then what did the church believe before that? And they believe this, that God has one plan. And that plan is the church. And any plan for ethnic Israel has to do with them being brought into the church. But God has one people. And not one people are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is the biblical doctrine. Just look here in verse 9. There are people who say, we are Jews. And in the context, that means that they are saying, we're the people of God. We're Jews. We're of the circumcision. We're descended from Abraham. We are God's covenant people. But they aren't. Jesus says so himself. Oh, they think they are. They think they're zealous for the Lord. They think that they belong to him. And what does the Lord say? No. 
They're actually a synagogue of Satan. They aren't real Jews. They aren't even God's people. They belong to the evil one. What's the implication? That those suffering Christians in Smyrna are true Israel and the genuine people of God. Not that Israel is replaced, but that the church is an expansion and a fulfillment of true Israel, namely those who belong to the Lord by faith from the beginning. And it isn't just in this passage that you see this. It's, it's hinted at in the Old Testament and it's made clear repeatedly in the New. In Matthew 3, the Jews are warned by John the Baptist not to trust in their genealogies. God, God uh, John tells them, can raise up children of Abraham from these stones, they're told. So they need to be prepared to meet the Messiah, right? Whether they can trace their pedigree to Jacob or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is being in the kingdom by faith. Or consider the argument between Jesus and the Jews in John 8. They're rejecting him. They're rejecting what he teaches. And their defense is, we're children of Abraham. We're Jews. We belong to God. You know, rabbis in that time actually even taught that Abraham sat outside the gates of hell with a stick. And if a Jew just so happened to wander near, Abraham would chase him away with a stick. Jesus tells them, actually, if you were truly children of Abraham, you would believe in me. Because Abraham believed in me. That's who the children of Abraham are, those who believe. But they didn't believe. They wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus tells them, you are not children of Abraham. You are children of your father, the devil, a murderer from the beginning. Almost the same thing he tells the church here in Smyrna. They're a synagogue of Satan because they're seeking to kill the children of God, Christians. In Galatians 3.7, those who are children of Abraham are not ethnic and not descendants, but are children by faith. And probably the, the clearest declaration of this in Scripture, Romans 9, 6-8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. 6-7. Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. That doesn't mean that the children of Isaac are the children of the covenant because Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. And Esau's children decidedly were not. What does God say? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what's Paul saying here in Romans 9? He's saying it's not children of the flesh. It's not children of earthly descent and lineage who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as Abraham's offspring. It means those who have believed the promise are the ones who are born through faith. That's how the New Testament answers the question. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Who are the true Jews? Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's what Paul says. That's what the Bible says. Not all who are descended from Israel are really Israel. So there's a, a true Israel here and a not true Israel who thinks they're true Israel. And who are they? True Israel are those who put their trust and faith in Christ. They're the children of the promise. That's who God's people are. And when ethnic Israel opposes those people and rejects Christ, he rejects them. And he says, not only rejecting them, says they're offspring of Satan. If they were truly of Abraham, they would believe because God's people are those who put their trust in 
Christ. And so here in Smyrna, the people are being persecuted by those who claim to belong to God but don't. And we're reminded again that God sees all of those who uh, reject Jesus and who persecute the church as instruments of Satan. And why anyone would, would, would disagree with this and say, no, 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 the Jews are still God's chosen people. I mean, that's beyond me. I mean, right here, if they reject Jesus Christ, Jesus himself says, they're a synagogue of Satan and children of the devil. You know, there's an excellent little book on this, by the way, if you say, oh, I want to I, I straighten this out. There's a little book on, on this called Rightly Dividing the People of God by Keith Matheson. And so if you're wondering, you know, what, what, do, I, what do I think about this? Pick up that book, give it a read, um, and think this through. Maybe you say, well, well then, is there any future for ethnic Israel? Maybe. Romans 11, maybe. Possibly, probably. But if it is, it's not a restoration of Judaism. It's a mass repentance and belief that brings them into the church. There's not a special separate plan for them. By the way, all the old writers, old meaning prior to about 1880, talked this way. The future for Israel, if there's a future for Israel, it's them being brought into the church of Jesus Christ. There's not a special separate plan for them except being brought back into the covenant by faith. And so that's the first thing to notice here. And it's important because it comes in in the remainder of the book. Right in the opening chapters, we're told that when this book is talking about Israel and when it's talking about the Jews, there are people who are not the Jews and the people who are. And the people who are are God's covenant people, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you'll see that as we move through the book. Secondly, and more to the, more to the, the meat of the letter, these Christians are being severely persecuted. The Jews who opposed them were informing on them. They were turning them into the Roman government and having them killed. The, the Christians were being lied about. They were being slandered. And, and, and the situation in Smyrna, at least from an earthly per perspective, it's very dark. Verse 10 says, The devil himself is about to throw some of them into prison to test them. This isn't a situation unique to Smyrna. Any religious group that persecutes the church and petitions the government to imprison Christians, and, and any government would, that would do that, well, Scripture's clear, they become an instrument of the evil one. And this becomes clear as you progress through the book. Governments and institutions can become instruments for evil. They can become demonic. Not like uh, possession that you see in movies, but they can become tools that work against Christ and His people. And that happens. But the point here isn't that the powers that be are in the sway of the evil one, but that they are all under the divine sovereign control of Christ. And He is about to test them, His church, and refine His church. And it's a, a reminder that no matter how terrible things become, they're always working for good for those who love the Lord. And so he tells them, don't be afraid. We have our first mention now in the book of Revelation of a, of a specific time. Ten days. Ten days of imprisonment. And I, it doesn't mean literally ten days. The letter wouldn't even reach the church in Smyrna in ten days. The word ten is used to mean enough. You know, or a lot. Not too much, but not a little either. 
And so he tells them they're about to endure a time of suffering. But it won't be too long. Now listen, 10-day imprisonment, it doesn't end with their freedom and liberty. That's how we think of it. 10 days, they'll go through this trial, and then they'll be in prison. Someone will come, open the door, open it up, set them free. That's not how things worked in the ancient world. People weren't put in prison as a punishment. They were only held in prison until they could be sentenced, and often they were being held because it was a capital crime, and they were likely to flee if they weren't restrained until their trial. So do you understand what that means in this context? You will have 10 days of tribulation. And what comes next? What's the very next thing that the Lord tells them? Be faithful unto death. Jesus is telling this congregation, this is what He is telling this church at Smyrna in this letter, some of you are going to be killed. He's letting them know a time is coming and many of you are going to die for my namesake. We read about it happening to Polycarp, the leader of the church, when we began. That's the severe persecution that's coming. An imprisonment, and when that imprisonment ends, you will be executed. Jesus is telling them this. He's warning them in advance. This is what's coming. This is what has been ordained for you. I'm, I, I, it's in the future. This is what is going to happen. Some of you are going to die. Which is why the third point of this letter is so important. Jesus is life. This poor little church, they're, they're in extreme poverty. They're cast off from society. Many of them are waiting to be put to death. And yet Jesus tells them, you look around and it's, it's poor and it's pretty pathetic. But I'm telling you, you are rich. Your storehouses in heaven are full. Why? Because they have eternal life in Christ. And, any, and they have a kind of life that far exceeds anything that they could have hoped to have gained in this world. Just think about how the letter opens. Jesus, their Savior, their Lord, and their God. He presents Himself as who? What does he, how does He define Himself when He presents Himself to the congregation in this letter? He is the one who died, and yet He lives. He is speaking. Even though He died, He is alive. Death could not hold Him. The grave couldn't grip Him. The tomb and the cross and the curse weren't strong enough to keep Him dead. And by the sheer force of His being, death is conquered and Jesus rose from the grave. You know, what a message for a small group of faithful people trusting in Him who are about to be killed. Jesus comes and says, yes, it's going to happen, but it's okay. Yes, you will die, but you serve me, the Lord of life, and I hold the keys to death and hell, and I will raise you up again, and whatever rose will be far better than what was lost. He's not going to let His people go to that awful place. He's been there, and He knows how to bring you back from it. Continues to comfort them in verse 11. He'll give them a crown of life. He's the Lord of life, 
In His hand is the life and breath and soul of every living thing. But it's not just life that He offers. It's a crown. Well, it speaks to the quality of the life that He will give them. Here, here they're a poor and pitiable lot, but in the life to come, they will have crowns on their heads. So there's a, a coronation awaiting those who suffer such trials. In fact, Jesus is telling them death is a very chariot that brings you, brings you there. I mean, you wonder how Christians in the past, how they faced destruction, how they faced the wild beasts and the flames with, with such boldness. You wonder how Polycarp could say, you know, get, up, get on with it. They knew what was happening. They knew that this wasn't the end of their life, but the beginning of the life they were waiting for. This was the beginning of real life, not the end. A crown of glory awaited them on the other side, and so willingly and many times easily they gave up their lives here for what was infinitely better. A crown of glory and of life. And lastly, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. Overcomes what? The fear of death. And then conquering that fear, no longer afraid, dies. To him who overcomes by being killed, the second death will not hurt you. The second death will not touch you. So don't be afraid of what people might do to you here. And we've been told... We, we have to be told not to be afraid because death is frightening. You know, let's not, let's not pretend it isn't fearful. Death is fearful and even many Christians are afraid to die. I think of Pilgrim's Progress and you get to the end of Pilgrim's Progress and, and uh, they cross the river death. It's not the same for everybody. Valiant for Truth approaches it and it's, a, it's as if the river uh, parts and he walks through on dry land. Christian goes through, he almost drowns. It's not the same for everyone, but we can have faith. And, and face it boldly. And so they need to be told, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The Lord will preserve you from death far worse than the sword of the flames of the beasts. And we're reminded again that there's more happening here than just what's seen. There's a, a paradise for these people to earn or to lose. There's a hell to be escaped from or thrown into. There is a second death and it's 10,000 times infinitely more terrible and frightening and dreadful than the first. And if you want to be afraid of something, be afraid of that. Everyone will face the first death. Everybody in this room within a hundred years will face the first death. It's only a matter of time. But the second death will not touch anybody who has put their faith in Christ. So don't be afraid of the threat of other religions, of the ire of the culture, of the sword of the state. Don't. All that they can do is usher you into the paradise of God. The second death, the lake of fire, hell, they're far worse places to go. I pray for all of us here that we would, would believe this. If you believe this, do you know how free you would be? How liberating it is not to be afraid of anything that might come because if you're not afraid of the worst that could come what else is going to scare you all it's going to do is store up for you treasures in heaven <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, he was a missionary in Eastern Europe and he was talking to his he was being interrogated and he said to his captors 
Your greatest weapon is killing me. My greatest weapon is dying. And he believed it. You say, well, you know, what about my kids? Listen, doesn't the Bible teach over and over that the heart of the Lord is geared and aimed towards the widows and the orphans? If anything were happened to you, do you know what it would do? It would endear the heart of the Lord towards your children in a way that it's not right now. And His attention and comfort to them would be uh, a unique and special. And He would be nearer to them than He would ever be with you here. So don't be afraid. Now, I, I can't imagine that if somebody lost their life for the sake of the Lord, that He would hand their family over to poverty and destruction. I can't see our Father in Heaven doing anything but being a better Father to them than any Father here could. And that's not presumption. He tells us so. So don't fear suffering or death. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful in suffering, knowing that God has reserved for you a crown of life and that the second death will not touch anyone who overcomes. And I hope, I hope if you're here this morning, you're afraid of death or you fear the cost of following Christ, you can take Him at His word. Christ is better. And even though you can't see Him, you can believe Him. That's His message to the church here facing death. That's His message to the church in every age. He is the Lord of life and you can take Him at His word. That's His word to the suffering children at the church in Smyrna. In the next letter, verses 12 to 17, is to the church at Pergamum. Verse 12. And to the angel at the church at Pergamum write... The word of him who has the sharp sword, the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. <clears throat> you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The church at Pergamum is a mixture. And you see that mixture because a new word comes up. The word, some. Some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam. Some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I will bring my sword against them. Distinguishing them. Right? At Smyrna, everyone was faithful. In Ephesus, everyone was in danger. Here, the Lord begins to divide. And so it's no surprise that He comes with a sword drawn, both to judge and to separate. Because Pergamum has become a church rife with idolatry. You know, that idolatry, it didn't just happen because one day everybody came together and said, you know, maybe we should start worshiping idols now. No, the idolatry happening in Pergamum was a result of the pressure that was coming upon them from the state to compromise on their loyalty to God. Right? Just bow the knee a little bit to the idols of Rome. And so Jesus says, I know where you live. 
Satan's throne is there. And what does that mean? Well, we know that in Pergamum there was an altar to Zeus that dominated the religious district. High points in cities. You read about an Acropolis. It's a high point in the city. They were always turned into these religious complexes. And this one had an altar to Zeus, but it wasn't your typical altar. It dominated the landscape of the city. It was 120 feet by 112 feet on a huge raised plaza. All around this plaza were uh, carvings and frescoes to the exploits and battles of Zeus. There on top was an altar 18 feet tall and a giant statue of Zeus seated on his throne. But it was a massive monument not really dedicated to Zeus. Really, it was dedicated to Satan. Because there is no Zeus. It was Satan's throne. I don't know if you notice this, but false religion in the Bible is always attributed, always in every instance, to demonic influence. Now, there was also a temple to the God of healing. And he was represented by a snake. And his temple was full of non-poisonous snakes that slithered all over the place. Sorry if you don't like snakes. But if you wanted to be healed, you would go into the temple and you would lay down and hope that the snakes slithering all over you would heal you. And so you, you, you get the picture here in uh, Pergamum. A false god on a throne and then serpents all over the place. Right? You, you get the picture. Satan on his throne, a place full of serpents. And then lastly, you have the imperial cult. <coughs> this really dominated everything in Pergamum. Pergamum was a, a Roman capital, an administrative center for the Roman Empire. And as a Roman capital in Asia, the imperial cult was the most powerful influence there in the city. And by the way, whenever you hear me talk about the imperial cult, what I mean by that is the worship of the emperor. Whenever you hear imperial cult, what it means is the, the Roman government demanding that the citizens and people who lived in the Roman Empire worshipped Caesar. And if you didn't worship Caesar or any other state-sanctioned deity, it was death. A capital crime to refuse to worship not only Caesar, but any of the other uh, Roman gods. Rome, Rome loved to... Uh, they, they would have anybody, very pluralistic. You could come and worship whoever you wanted so long as you would worship all the gods of the state. Christians wouldn't do that. And what you have happening here in Pergamum is a, is a theme that really runs through the whole book. But it's this intertwining of religion and the state that ultimately is under the control of Satan. And this happens when governments forsake all of the responsibilities given to them by God and they force religion on its citizens or even become religions under themselves. You know, they never call themselves religions, not in modern times at least, but they have all of the hallmarks of one with creeds and confessions, doctrines and heresies, priesthoods and sacraments. When they do that, they become instruments in the hand of the evil one. And this becomes clearer later on in the book, but it's nevertheless the case here. And the church, under pressure from Rome and its religious allies, is compromising. It's compromising on God. It's compromising on its convictions. It's compromising on the truth. And that's the, the great threat facing or really dividing the church in this letter. Some are faithful, like Antipas. 
And I love that Antipas is mentioned here, by the way. He was a martyr. He was killed. We don't know anything about him other than his name is mentioned here. But Jesus knows him. And Jesus remembers him. For every faithful believer, history might forget you and your church might forget you and uh, the culture may dismiss you. Even your own family might forget you. You say, my own family? Well, how many of you remember your great-great-great-grandfather? Christ never forgets his children, ever. Even Antipas. He was known by God and was precious in his sight and now he's reigning with Christ who knows him by name. And there are many others in Pergamum like Antipas who refused to deny the name of Christ no matter the cost. But that persecution coming against them, that's actually not the biggest threat facing the church. They're pre facing pressure from the outside to worship idols, but far more destructive is the pressure they're facing from the inside to give in to those demands. It's a pattern repeated in history 10,000 times. Someone comes into the church with good intentions, usually, and they say something like this. If the church would just compromise on this one thing, if we just stop making a big deal about it, give this one thing over to the culture, then the world would not be so hostile. We would have greater influence. We'd cause less offense. We would be more effective for winning the world for Christ. This threat isn't even new in the church age. It was the same tactic used hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago at this point, by Balaam and Balak. Here's one of many references to an event in the Old Testament being taken and applied to the church. Balak and Balaam were not you know, resurrected and come back to harass God's people, but they did in the past, and something similar is happening here. Not unlike Zeus and Rome and the political power, right? Balak, who was the king, at the advice of the religious power, Balaam, the prophet, conspired to destroy God's people. It happened in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 and 24, and you don't have to turn there, but the reason it happened was because Balaam wanted to be rich. Now, Balak was a king who was fearful of Israel. They were on their way into the promised land and Balak was afraid. He knew he couldn't defeat them militarily and so he hired a famous, well-known sorcerer to come, a prophet named Balaam to come and curse God's people and destroy them. And Balaam went because Balaam loved money. Now God warned Balaam not to go. The allure of silver and gold was far too much for him to resist. And so he went, even though the angel of the Lord appeared with a sword drawn pointed right at Balaam. He pressed on anyway. And even though the angel gives him permission to go, the implication is Balaam should not have went. And you see how fitting it is then, the sword in Christ's mouth here. He will strike down those who go the way of Balaam. But what is that way? Against the warning of the Lord, Balaam went to curse Israel. God prevented him from cursing Israel, and Balak was going to send the prophet home empty-handed. He's not going to give him anything. No, no silver, no gold. That wouldn't do. And so Balaam devised a scheme. He talked to Balak, and they decided, here's, here's what we'll do. We'll send Moabite women to go and seduce the Israelites and tempt them to worship other gods. And so Balaam led Israel into idolatry and immorality because it paid well. And that's the teaching of Balaam. 
it's okay to worship idols, to eat food, sacrifice to them, and to be immoral so long as it pays well. And you don't need to lose any money to serve the Lord. You don't need to lose any status. You don't need to suffer persecution or loss. All you need to do is bow the knee to Moloch or the emperor just a little bit. That's the immorality of it. And the word is translated sexual immorality in Revelation. It's, it's one word, immorality, and often it can be translated to mean adultery. And I think that might be a more appropriate translation here. The people at the church in Pergamum are committing spiritual adultery. How? By joining into the feasts of the pagan gods in order to spare themselves from trouble. By the way, by the way this is not like 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, that was meat from the marketplace. That was left over from a sacrifice at a temple. This is going to the pagan temple to celebrate and participate in the worship so that the pressure is relieved. It's the way of Balaam. Not only that, the Nicolaitans reappear. And apparently they taught something very similar. And we don't know much about the Nicolaitans outside of Scripture. They appear three times in ancient church history. Irenaeus reports that they were like goats in their immorality. And they were the heretical followers of Nicholas, one of the deacons from Acts 6. Hippolytus affirms this, and Clement of Alexandria, these are the, the ancient writers who write about them, Clement of Alexandria, another church leader, he exonerates Nicholas and says, yeah, he was a, an aesthetic, he was very concerned about the appearance of things, but he was faithful. His followers, however, perverted his teaching, and they were called the Nicolaitans. And that's all we know about them, and none of it good. But you put it together, and you get the picture. You get false teachers inside of the church claiming Christianity who are saying something along the lines of what's well, okay to participate in the idolatry and the feast of the pagans in order to avoid persecution. Now, you're mature, you're wise, you're free in Christ and, and you know that food offered to idols is nothing at all. And besides, think of all the good you could do or the influence you could have. And compromise in this area, and, and the good that you'll do, you don't need to trouble your conscience at all. You think the same thing happens in the church today? You think that someone could say this? Could you, could you imagine some evangelistic group saying, it's alright to compromise, to sin, just this little bit, because of all of the influence and credibility to get, you'll get. You could partner with this institution that defies and denies God. You could eat with the pagans at the temple or watch this popular perverse show to help you interact with them or you can participate in this event that God despises you can dabble in idolatry if your intentions are good this happens all the time pressure to compromise for the sake of preservation and influence and evangelism you know I remember when I was in Bible college uh, I took a class about missions and, and one of the debates that, that broke out in the course of the class was if you were a missionary in a Muslim country, is it acceptable for you to go to the mosque and perform the prayers on Fridays? Now on the one side they said, well it's just a common courtesy. You know, we want them to come to our church, we should go to theirs, right? Love them as ourselves. and. You know, it, it will show them that you're not hostile to Islam and it will help you to reach Muslims and it's okay so long as you don't actually mean what you're doing. Just pray to God when you do it. And that was one side. 
And then I was on the other side, and I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Uh, my side was a lot smaller, shockingly. <laughs> it's all right to lie to Muslims in order to win them. It's okay to, worse than that, break the command of God, right, the very first one, and do it in the name of evangelism, so long as I mean well. It's okay to act like there's no difference between the God of the Bible and Allah. It's absurd. It was total compromise, and it was being done in the name of advancing the kingdom of God. It was evil. I mean, you think about it. Yes, I am going to break, in order to win these people to God, I'm going to deny everything He told me about how to reach them. It's not going to work. Well, you better believe this kind of thing is still happening. And it usually isn't a compromise with Islam, it's a compromise with the idols of the age. Anytime a church begins to play secular music, you say, that's a small thing, it's not a small thing. It's really not. It's a sign that the church has gone way off course. Or when they start to strip away Christian doctrines that might be offensive or certain elements or, or, or adopt a kind of Christianity light where church is optional, sin is permissible so long as it isn't too much or grotesque. And, and by grotesque, I mean at a step with the culture. Church discipline is set aside in the name of love. The corporate worship of God is not defined by God, but by what the people want. Give them what they want. There's no conflict with the world. And it becomes more and more like the world. But any time a church is being drawn back into the world and back into the culture, and back into the sin and idolatry and the forms and ways of thinking and the, and the corruption from which they've been delivered, when that happens, they've gone the way of Balaam. And it happens all the time. Churches succumb to the pressure. It doesn't just happen to churches. It happens to individuals too. It happens to people. It becomes even clearer at the church in Thyatira. But how often do you feel this pressure? This tension? Probably you think about it at least once a day. Maybe not on the weekends, but certainly five days a week when you're at work. If you just give in a little bit, small compromise, right? To the imperial cult, just drop a pinch of incense on the altar and say, Jesus is Lord, or uh, Caesar is Lord. You do that, everything will go well. You will have peace with the world, and you will. You know, put the flag on your desk. It'll go well for you. You'll have peace with the world and you will join them in their war against Christ. You say, is it that serious? Peace with the world invites the sword of the Lord. That's how serious it is. I mean, you can't love God and love the way of the world. It doesn't work. If you can't love, if you can't serve God and money, then how are you possibly going to serve God and idols? I mean, you can't. It's one or the other. And if you try to have both, you'll end up with neither. The idols will fail you. The world will fall away. And Christ will forsake you. That's, that's what any compromising church and compromising Christian provokes. Christ will make war on them with the sword of His mouth. Verse 16. That's exactly what it says. And that's exactly what it means. 
He will judge the cowardly and the compromiser, the worldly and the idolatrous, and He will cut through their justifications and excuses and strike them down just like what happened to Balaam. Numbers 31.8, Joshua 13.22, Balaam dies by the sword. There is a sword in the hand of Christ reserved for the compromiser unless, unless you repent. The sword is drawn, but the sentence is not in stone. There is time to repent of compromise. And so, if you're here this morning and you, you don't know the Lord, you only know the way of the world, it says, this is all new to me. The word of the Lord for you, for, to you is to repent and put your trust in Him. But if you're a Christian, or say you're a Christian, but only on Sundays, or in the mornings, or when it's convenient, but otherwise, you're right back in the world. You love the world. Pursue what the world pursues. Celebrate what they celebrate. The Lord's word for you is repent, or He will make war against you with the sword from His mouth. Or if you want to live as close to sin and the idolatry of the world as you can. Now you're not going to participate. You're going to come up right to the edges. And you're going to peek over the fences. And you find yourself window gazing at the world. The Lord's word for you is repent. And if you're tempted to compromise, to bend the knee just a little bit to the idols of this age, just going to let the pressure off just a little bit. The Lord's word to you is repent. Even at the thought, don't let it take root. And to those who do, to those in the church who will not compromise or who have compromised but repent of it and they refuse to eat from the table anymore, the Lord has a promise. He will give you hidden manna. Hidden manna. In the Old Testament, when God's people were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they were brought into the desert wilderness, they still needed to eat. And in the nights, God caused a kind of flour to appear with the dew, and they called it manna. It was bread that came down from heaven. And in John 6.31, Jesus tells us that He is the true manna come down from heaven. And in the same way that bread sustains our lives here, and that without food we waste away, Christ is saying to these uh, people at the church at Pergamum, you were made for more than bread. You were made for me. I am the bread of life. You don't have to go and participate in these public pagan feasts. He will give you hidden manna and He will sustain you with His own life. And it's a promise to those who do not compromise that there is an abundant life now hidden that will be revealed to them in Jesus Christ. I mean, you think about it. Why do people compromise? They compromise to preserve themselves. They compromise to prevent loss, to maintain their standard of living, to live life more fully. And Jesus says, no, true life is hidden with me. And if you compromise in the faith, it doesn't preserve your life, it costs you eternal life. But to those who conquer and are steadfast, they receive Christ and they receive life in its fullest measure. No loss. Secondly, he promises them a white stone. In the ancient world, if you were victorious, you were given a white stone as your admission to the victor's feast. And on that stone, there is a name. And it is a new name. 
could be a name that was given to you uh, by the Lord. Often in the Bible, people are given new names by God. Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, Jacob becomes I, uh, Israel. Simon becomes Peter. It could be a name from the Lord to you. Or it could be the name of Christ. It's a new name given to Him that is revealed to you because always in Revelation you see Christ being given a new name. But either way, the point is the same. If you forsake, if you don't forsake Christ and His Word, if you endure, overcome, persevere, Christ will own you as His. And you will know Him. And He will know you. And He will never be ashamed of you. He recognizes every one of His faithful people like Antipas. And He never forgets them and never, ever forsakes them. And so the church faced a crisis that the church and every individual Christian faces. Will you compromise and be drawn back into the world and into the culture and into worldly ways of thinking? Will you allow a little bit of the corruption you were delivered from back in? I mean, it happens. And I pray it isn't happening here in this church or secretly in the hearts of anybody here. Now, I'm sure many of you have felt this tension and have felt this pressure to yield, but you have wrestled through it and overcome. And to those of you who have, and to those of you who will, maybe you're wrestling with this right now, you are window gazing at the world, and you say, this needs to stop. I'm going to turn away from that and believe that Christ is my life, and my life is hidden with Him. And He is more precious to me than anything here I could lose. You will be sustained by Him. And you will be given a seat at the table of the eternally victorious. And you will be known by Christ Himself personally, intimately, forever. The world will forget you eventually. Christ never will. And no compromise is worth forfeiting Him. He is our hope and our life and our God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would be with Your people this morning. And I pray, Lord, that You would encourage those who are presently enduring trials. My prayer, Lord, is that You would encourage them to be faithful even unto death. Lord, none of us are there yet. Lord, I pray if we find ourselves there, Lord, that we would remember the church at Smyrna and more remember what You said to them about Yourself. You are the one who died and came back. You are the only one who knows the path from death to life and can take innumerable people along it with you. You have a crown of life reserved for those who overcome. And those who overcome will not be touched by the second death. Lord, you are life. You are only hope in life and death. And I pray, Lord, that you, we would remember that any voice that calls us to compromise is a voice that lies. It is a voice that promises life but delivers death. It is a voice that promises peace in the world but doesn't tell us that it means making war on Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to see through that deception and believe that Christ is better than any kind of hope or life that we could seek to preserve here apart from Him. 
We have Christ, Christ alone, and He is all we need. Lord, help us to believe it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.